Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast, where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Sadia Yacoub is an assistant professor of religion at Williams College. She holds a PhD in Islamic studies from Duke University and an MA from the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill University. Her research focuses on the construction of gender in early Islamic legal discourse, analyzing the normative constructions of maleness and femaleness at the intersection of other social categories. Dr. Sadia Yacoub gave a talk here at ACMCU this past April entitled Reading Gender and Early Islamic Law, Male and Female Slaves as Legal Subjects. And she joins us for this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much for coming on to talk with us here on Building Bridges. So you just gave a talk at ACMCU, uh, Reading Gender and Early Islamic Law. And, you know, I just wanted to give first off just a background about yourself for our audience how you started studying this topic and what brought you to it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. So uh, it, it's quite a long journey, really, in, in, in terms of how um, I got both to the study of Islamic law and gender and then this topic in particular. So, I, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, as a, as a young teenager, just being very fascinated by a lot of these, uh, you know, Islamic uh, legal discourses, uh, uh, you know, that, that were sort of a part of communal discourse. So at that point, I obviously was not reading any of these legal texts themselves. But, you know, in terms of living life in a communal Muslim context, uh, the question of, you know, what the law has to say about X, Y, and Z is always part of the conversation. And I grew up in Pakistan and moved to the U.S. when I was 16. So certainly in Pakistan, the question of, especially in the 80s, which is, uh, you know, when I was sort of coming into the late 80s, early 90s, when I was coming uh, into my teenage, the question of Islam and Islam's role in uh, in the country and the Islamist uh, process that uh, Ziaul Haq had set, set into motion were all burning conversations. So Islamic law was kind of always in the air uh, when I was growing up, and I was very intrigued both by it, but also particularly by the ways in which it was employed to often uh, constrain women and the the, the kinds of uh, things that they were calling for, whether that meant in a familial context of, you know, you as a girl, uh, you can't do this or you can't do that, uh, or whether that meant, you know, socially more broadly, the way in which Islam and particularly Islamic law was employed to justify societal norms. Um, and so as I kind of, you know, was preparing to... Um, uh, enter into college, I remember, you know, being very clear in my interest uh, in wanting to study Islam and particularly Islamic law in undergrad. And um, I remember as a as a junior, 
looking through, so at that point, I mean, this is sort of late 90s, you know, everything was not so easily available on the internet. Um, and so what I, you know, what we had were those catalogs where you look through, you know, the catalog of like a major and then the different universities and colleges that had uh, programs where you could major in that. And I remember flipping through and looking for Islamic law or Islamic studies. Uh, and, and, you know, there was, there were next to no programs. And so eventually, so I went to community college my first two years and then transferred to American University actually here in DC, so not too far from Georgetown. And so eventually majored in, uh, and I got interested in, in American University precisely because they had an undergraduate degree in what they called law and society. It was thinking about law in it with its intersection uh, with sociology, anthropology, psychology, religion, so on and so forth. Um, so that interest in law, you know, was, was something that I, um, and Islamic law in particular, something that I was uh, very intrigued by from a very early age. After uh, I I graduated uh, from college, I decided that I wanted to go to grad school to study Islamic law. But in order to do that, I wanted to actually acquire both the linguistic skill as well as the knowledge of that, of legal text as a, as a genre. So I went to Egypt and I studied there uh, both Arabic as well as uh, Islamic legal text before going to um, McGill university for my master's uh, and then returned to Egypt after that and then uh, in 2009 started my doctoral program at Duke uh, University but uh, even while doing my PhD I continued to study uh, Islamic law and particularly Hanafi law uh, with a, a scholar in Amman Jordan who focuses on uh, Hanafi legal discourse so so that's kind of my trajectory uh, both of interest as well as study of Islamic law the particular uh, the sort of book project kind of emerged from this burning question that I've had uh, from as far back as I can remember of why are there, uh, you know, at, at that very early age, the way in which I formulated that question was, uh, why are there so many restrictions on women in Islamic law? Right. Uh, and by the time that I started my uh, started my my dissertation and then completed it and now on to the book project, it has really morphed into um, uh, a somewhat related, but in some ways, a very different project, which is trying to think about what gender meant in uh, early Islamic law. What were the assumptions that jurists held about uh, gender as a mode of human existence um, and how that shaped the ways in which uh, they developed the law. So how did those gendered assumptions influence legal hermeneutics, the ways in which they produced uh, legal, re uh, legal rulings? Um, and, uh, and the sort of conclusion that I have come to in the years that I've been thinking about this is that really gender doesn't seem to be the only way in which jurists were thinking about uh, human existence and social ordering, that gender actually uh, intersected with a lot of other hierarchies in society, such as uh, having to do with enslavement and with age and social status. Uh, and so if we want to understand uh, how it is that um, humans acquired legal agency uh, and the ways in which the law uh, played a role in the structuring of society, we have to think not only about gender, but also gender alongside all of these other social factors. So that's kind of a very long uh, answer to how I got here and, and where here is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just thinking for me, at least on the complexity that, that your study must have called for, just to be able to look at all of these sourced uh, texts from, you know, time periods where 
you know, they just did not have the, the means in which to be able to vet and convey and, and, and communicate from region to region and place to place just the sheer complexity of, of, of law you yeah. know, regarding, um, you know, things such as gender and enslavement and so on. Now, in your talk, uh, you focused on the work of a particular jurist from the 11th century. Do you mind going into a bit of a background of, of who this person was and, and why you chose to focus on this individual specifically? Yeah. So uh, the the main uh, uh, Hanafi jurist that I look at, so I look at, uh, so within uh, Islamic law uh, as a historical intellectual tradition, there are both Sunni and Shi legal schools. And amongst the Sunnis, uh, there are four of which Hanafism is one of them. And so I focus specifically on this Hanafi legal school. Uh, and within that, my talk for today focused on the works of this 11th century Central Asian uh, Muslim jurist by the name of Muhammad bin Ahmad al-Sarakhsi. The reason I... Um, decided to focus on him was for a couple of reasons. So the first is because of his sort of central position in the development of Hanafi law. So 11th century in relation to Islamic history uh, is this moment where the, the, the legal discourse was moving from its formative period, uh, entering into the classical period. So essentially, in the formative period, you had a lot of conversations about uh, different legal issues and scenarios and different uh, jurists coming up with um, answers uh, in or you know solutions to these uh, legal scenarios and, and and you start to see a attempt to uh, collate these different opinions and then also authorize certain one, ones amongst them uh, in uh, this this period sort of uh, you know from the the 10th century uh, and and 11th century and so Sarahsi kind of sits at this very pivotal moment where you're starting to see the legal tradition attempt to um, create boundaries uh, of, of what are the possible answers to particular scenarios and then giving uh, a certain kind of uh, authoritative position of the school. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of catch the law at that particular historical moment and then focus on somebody uh, to be able to, to, to trace what were the conversations that were happening and, uh, and how did his work then influence the conversations that continued after him. The other reason I chose him um, is because uh, his uh, uh, legal text that I look at, Kitab al-Mabsud, is this massive 31, 32 volume text. And so there's just an incredible wealth of information uh, in that text. Uh, Islamic legal texts tend to be uh, of different genres. Uh, you get texts that are very terse. They are primarily meant to communicate the legal ruling on uh, a particular issue, but doesn't really uh, spend too much time either justifying or explaining uh, uh, why uh, the jurist arrived at that opinion, or you can have slightly more detailed text. And 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 the uh, the 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 particular characteristic of Sarahsi's text is that it sort of goes across these different genres in that uh, it doesn't just he doesn't just focus on providing a justification. He really pontificates in, on, on, on so many different levels about why something is the way that it is. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, I posted on, on, on Facebook recently uh, uh, something that I was reading in his text, which is talking about 
marriage and uh you know why it is that uh the law um advises a guardian to consult a virgin girl uh, about her marriage right that that one should not marry her off uh without uh, first consulting her and uh you know so he's sort of giving his uh, arguments and justifications for it and you know that you would see in other texts and then sort of goes off on this very kind of romantic moment where he says you know maybe you know she we should ask her because maybe she's in love with somebody else and you know if you marry her off to another guy she'll never be able to be happy with him and maybe because she's not happy with him and her heart was with somebody else she's going to end up falling into uh, an illicit relationship because she's in love with somebody else right and then you know sort of uh, says you know and what malady is there worse than the malady of love right uh and and i'd love his text for precisely this reason because it's not just uh you know it, it, it sort of belies any kind of um particular uh genre uh and mode of thinking in fact when i uh, put it out on facebook one of the first comments i got was wait is this a fifth text right uh and i was like it is it is it's it's actually fifth text so that those are sort of uh, some of the the two reasons that i that i um decided to focus on him both historically where he's sitting which is a very crucial moment in being able to trace what were the different ways of thinking about gender what got solidified and what kind of life did it have in legal discourse after seraxi Uh, and then also you know just being able to have access to this person uh in the 11th century and so much of uh, him sort of sharing with us so much of what was happening in his mind as he was uh thinking about the legal discourse now looking at uh henefism um and this jurist at the time was was there any reason or was was a lot of his works around gender was it reactive to something going on at the time um, I mean, I'm sure gender has always played a role in, in the laws we create, but was there anything going on in the 10th through 11th century that would call to need this kind of uh, discourse and, and study on how gender played a role in Islamic law? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing, uh, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one is that, you know, the, the question about gender and its construction in law is is really uh, my question as a scholar that I bring to the text, and uh, and and it's not just my question, sort of in in, in terms of my own personal interest, but but the the way in which these texts are used in contemporary Muslim discourse. So part of the reason why Muslim feminist scholars have turned to looking at the pre-modern textual tradition is because. Uh, these texts get used um, as a repository, not only of sacred knowledge, uh, but also of what a pre-colonial Muslim past was, right? That, that this is what Islam is, and this is uh, who we should be, or, or these are the texts that should be influencing our discourse uh, around uh, gender uh, and gender norms in uh, both the communal context, but also in Muslim-majority nations where some of these laws might be uh, actually applied, uh, that, that, that these are the laws, um, uh, that should be put into effect. And so that has really, um, 
this kind of dynamic in contemporary Muslim discourse has what uh, is the reason why a lot of Muslim feminists have returned to these pre-modern legal texts. And so for, for me, my interest also comes from that particular historical moment that we are in. Uh, and, and, and so that, that, that question about gender I am taking uh, to his text, his text is not unusual in the ways in which he is talking about gender fic texts, uh, especially by this sort of, um, uh, you know, even the ninth and 10th centuries uh, tend to be uh, fairly a standard in the ways in which they're organized. They are not organized based on gender. They are uh, organized based on uh, certain aspects of the law. So the first books will be, you know, the book on purification. How do you sort of purify yourself? Then there'll be the book of prayer, the book of, uh, of almsgiving, the book of fasting, the book of pilgrimage. Um, so what I do is sort of, you know, with my question in mind, go into the text and look for instances where gender is, is informing the way in which uh, legal rulings are um, are produced, uh, and then thinking about what are all the different elements that went into the production of uh, those particular legal rulings, and, and and then thinking about how it's not just gender, but gender at the intersection of different social factors. So all of that to say that, you know, there's nothing peculiar about his text in terms of him talking about gender uh, more than others, or that something in his moment that has produced gender as a, as a more significant concern. I think it's, it's much more, you know, a, a kind of presentist concern and that there's something about our moment that has made gender into such a primary concern that I am then taking as a question back to the text. Was there anything that surprised you from, from reading his text regarding gender and how uh, gender roles and, uh, you know, the difference of treatment between men and women, even contemporarily, uh, are, are, are taken into account. I mean, was there anything that surprised you from his work? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I mentioned in my talk was that, uh, you know, when I first began my dissertation, my interest was in, um, in, in, in thinking about uh, gender uh, in Asarasi's text. And my assumption was that, you know, that he functioned on a gender binary. Uh, in fact, uh, that's very commonly i mean i think that's a, that's a very common assumption that is made both in com communal discourse as well as some of the the scholarship on on gender in islamic law that that gender is constructed on this male female binary and so i went in basically wanting to uh, look at how were how was maleness understood and how was female femaleness understood and so the chapters of the of the dissertation were sort of you know and, and at that point i was thinking much more specifically about desiring subjects and so you know i had a chapter on male subjects, I had a chapter on female subjects, and I had a chapter thinking about intersexual subjects. Um, and, you know, the more I read him, and as I finished up my dissertation, uh, it, it was this moment where I was like, but actually, <laughs> gender is, gender and particularly the gender binary, right, the idea that gender exists as male and female is me. It's not Sarakhsi. Sarakhsi had a, a much more complex uh, idea of gender because there wasn't a man, there were many different kinds of men. There wasn't a woman, there were many different kinds of women, right? And uh, even intersexuality was recognized uh, both uh, between intersexual subjects who could be uh, fit into a particular gender role and those who could not. Uh, and so that was the moment for me that was just, you know, one of those moments where being in conversation with this guy from the 11th century over so many years really just kind of opened my... Um, 
intellectual horizons to to saying, okay, wait a second, I need to step back from my assumptions. And I need to take seriously why he keeps, you know, shifting back and forth between, you know, what what a man is and what a woman is, because my initial response was to say, okay, so he says men are active and women are passive. And yet here he has a man who is enslaved, who is not active. Uh, and so clearly he doesn't know how to keep up with his own construction, right? Uh, is was my first response uh, that, that, you know, he sort of sets out these ideals and then the ideals fall apart. So there's this kind of internal fracturing, there's a, a fictive creation. And then at some point I had to say, no, actually, I think what's happening here is that my question is wrong. And so that, for me, I think was one of the most enjoyable parts of, of, of doing this work over the past several years. Now, you mentioned just there a moment ago uh, legal subjecthood, uh, slavery. Did you want to go into perhaps uh, what you found as the difference in the way that male slaves and female slaves were seen and or treated um, or talked about in the way in which could be treated from, from the jurist's notes. Yeah, so the talk that, uh, that I gave focused primarily on enslavement and the ways in which enslavement uh, intersects with gender to produce different kinds of gendered legal subjects. Uh, the book that I'm working on also looks at age and at social status as other kinds of, of factors. Um, so, you know, I can give you a, a couple of examples of how, um, you know, uh, of, of how this might work. So, you know, one example that I explored in the talk is that you have uh, this discussion about enslaved men and uh, whether or not they can marry. Now, in uh, in Islamic law, the the conception of the marriage contract is one in which men. Uh, acquire ownership of sexual access to the wife, right? So the husband uh, uh, acquires ownership of sexual access to the wife. It's a world in which uh, the body and particularly female sexuality is commodified. Uh, and, and so then there is that kind of trans transactional way in which the marriage relationship is understood uh, legally, right? I mean, there's other kinds of ethical discourse that uh, thinks about marriage in a very, uh, in a much less legalistic way, but at least in terms of how the law defines it, that is the understanding of marriage. So within that, uh, you know, what, in order to be able to marry, a man needs to be able to, the man needs to have the legal right to ownership, Right. Um, but the enslaved men, for the Hanafis in particular, do not have that right uh, because they are themselves seen as property. Right. And so uh, that then uh, impairs their legal capacity to be property owners. And so, you know, that's one of those moments where you can see that there is a certain idea of what it means to be a male that cannot be occupied by all males. There are only certain men who could be males in these ways that was assumed by uh, the law's construction of marriage. Uh, and so you have enslaved males who cannot have that position. Now, the way in which that's resolved uh, is by creating a legal fiction in which that enslaved man, only for the purposes of marriage, is seen as having ownership rights, even though uh, as an enslaved person, he doesn't, right? Uh, so, 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 you know, that's an example of how enslavement and gender intersect with one another to create a very different kind of legal subject. That's the moment where you have to then start to think that this is a world in which you don't have male and female as uh, complementary 
right, or in a binary opposition to one another, you have uh, a normative construction of maleness as being sort of the most powerful uh, legal agential position, and then all other legal subjects that are constructed in relation to him, which can be other men and other women, and then also intersexual subjects, right, who wouldn't be able to uh, fit into uh, either one of these gender identities of male and female. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's calling and coming to mind is, you know, should should a uh, a male slave uh, have a wife, then you know, could the slave's owner disregard um, the bond that that is established between the two enslaved peoples? Right. I mean, one could think that that could be the case. So it makes me wonder: Do, do you think that uh, a lot of this is is related to power? You know, the the power that one may have over another, regardless of gender. Right. Right. Absolutely. I think you're, you know, you're right on point there about the ways in which uh, this is really about relationships of power. And the pre-modern world, and particularly the pre-modern Islamic legal tradition, is a world of hierarchies, right? It's a world in which there were no pretenses being made about the power dynamics in society. It's just that gender was not the only mode through which power uh, was differentiated or exercised. And so, which is why you see that you can have a relationship of power between the enslaved male and the free male, and then the enslaved male in relation to the free female, right? So another example um, I can give you is um, the, you know, there's a legal discussion about whether a uh, a free slave-owning woman can marry her own enslaved male. Right. And the answer of uh, the Hanafi jurist is no, she can't, because as a slave owner, you know, she is in a position of power in relation to him. And in order to be a husband, he would need to have some amount of, uh, of, of power over her. Right. This notion of, uh, of, of acquiring uh, sexual exclusivity to her is a position of power because sex is about power. Right. Um, and so those two. Uh, then become a legal impossibility, right? They kind of cancel each other out uh, and because of which um, they cannot marry, right? So this is very, and, and, and what's interesting here is that, uh, you know, the, the marriage relationship is seen as a, as a relationship of power where you have a man in power over a woman. But here you have the opposite, where as a slave owner, she has power over him. Right. So it's not always that uh, that that men are always the ones who are in power over women. There are uh, certain kinds of subject constructions that would give you power over certain kinds of men. Now, uh, again, the you know, if he was an enslaved man who was marrying a free woman uh, who, uh, you know, uh, was not a slave owner in relation to him, then he could have that kind of dominion over her, right? So here then an enslaved person can actually have power over a free person because uh, they are in a husband-wife relationship. So power was working in very complicated ways uh, and, and, and not always differentiated based on gender, uh, but gender at the intersection of all of these different things in ways that you know, are not always predictable. But I think you're right on point that the way to think about this uh, is about power and, the, and the, the different binary constructions through which power is exercised. Lastly, looking, looking to today, what would you say that you've seen, do, do you have any comments to, to reflect on what's been going on recently with, 
you know, the Me Too movement, um, with there being a national and an international conversation around gender and around equality. Uh, do, do you think that, yes, pulling from the past is, is important, but do you, do you see this trend of women scholars and experts coming out and, and actually talking about these once taboo topics as empowering in themselves? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's a, that's a really great question is uh, there's so many uh, it's such a, you know, for me, the the way that I think about it is it's such a difficult position to be in um, both in terms of, the very important and necessary conversations that are happening at this moment for us as a nation, not only around gender and sexuality, but also around race and enslavement. Um, and as, but, but then also for those who see themselves as being uh, in, in conversation with an intellectual tradition that has within it uh, really problematic ideas uh, about enslavement, about social hierarchies, some of which are constructed along the lines of gender, um, feeling at some level, not knowing how to kind of keep uh, or, or balance this tension between the moral commitments that we have uh, around these contemporary conversations that are happening, and yet still feeling a sense of uh, either loyalty or being beholden to, um, uh, out of love and devotion, this uh, you know this this intellectual past. And I think that's part of what has informed the way in which um, I'm now trying to think about reading these legal discourse, uh, these legal texts, um, both through critique, but also in some sort of recuperative way. And I think for me, that's part of my kind of um, decolonial move in the sense that I think there's a way in which Muslims, uh, you know, uh, over the past two centuries have constantly had to uh, both justify themselves and the intellectual tradition is often brought up precisely as a way of villainizing Muslims. uh, and, and, And that the only way that is available for Muslims to, um, you know, to 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 push against this sort of villainizing of them is to step away from their Muslimness, right? I mean, the way in which the conversation is set up is that, uh, you know, here is. Uh, the intellectual tradition as the essence of Islam. Look at how problematic it is. Muslims are really problematic people. They're sexist. They're homophobic. They're right. All of all of these things. And the only way in which you can then defend yourself against that is by moving away from that sense of Muslimness, right? Um, and 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 so at some level, it it both sets up a particular kind of relationship that you can have to what you might see as your own history, but it also then means that the relationship that you can have to ongoing conversations is also one where you are constantly set up as trying to catch up, right? Rather than being producers of that discourse, and so that's part of I think what has really those kind of different. Um, moral commitments that I have uh, are informing the way in which I'm trying to think about uh, these, uh, this legal discourse that I look at, how can it be something that I both 
how can I position myself both in a mode of critique in relation uh, to the ideas around enslavement and, and, and gender and sexuality that are in that text, but how can I also use that uh, as part of my intellectual interlocutors, right, that shape the way in which I'm thinking about the contemporary moment, right? I don't have to go to these texts and be beholden to their conclusions, but there are things in there that I can find that spark in me a thought, right, or a, a way of recognizing or a way of intervening in ongoing conversations today uh, that, you know, can be productive for our particular moment, despite the fact that there are all of these other really problematic aspects to the text as well. So I think that's, you know, in, in terms of uh, the burning conversations that are happening, and, and, and these are happening not just in, uh, in broader society, but also internally within the Muslim community. Uh, these are questions that are burning. There's the Mosque Me Too movement, right? I mean, people are trying to raise awareness of communal you know, dynamics around gender uh, and sexuality that uh, are very harmful for women congregants for for queer Muslims, right, and being able to find loving and nurturing and supporting communities. So I think, you know, within these broader conversations, for me as a scholar thinking about the pre-modern world, I want to think about how uh, I can position myself not only as critiquing the way in which that history has very problematic ideas and the ways in which that history still con might continue to inform some of these very oppressive structures in the world today, but what does the pre-modern world also have to tell us that can actually be very productive in us thinking about what a more just world can look like. I mean, I think you've, you've definitely already brought some of that about within referencing the, uh, the, the way in which gender was talked upon and the terminology used, which seemed to allude to a, you know, understanding at least at the 10th and 11th century that gender isn't something defined as binary, as, as you know, to quote you from earlier. Right. Last year, I taught this history of sexuality class. And, and uh, you know, by the end of the semester, um, you know, a lot of the students, and, and mostly we focused on, you know, pre-modern uh, sexual cultures. And towards the end of the semester, uh, you know, as a, as a class, we were having this conversation. And, and so I was saying, I was, you know, telling students that, you know, it's, it's, the fact that we have now spent a semester thinking about the pre-modern world and how rich the pre-modern world was, both in terms of not thinking about gender only along a binary construction and the diversity of sexual practices and sexual expressions, is so powerful because the debate that the way in which the debate happens in our contemporary discourse is that the traditional, right, ever-living idea of gender and sexuality is. Uh, the gender binary and a heterosexual monogamous marriage, right? And yet, when you look at the pre-modern world, you realize, no, actually, that is a modern construction that, that happens at a particular historical moment. Humans have lived in many different ways, both in terms of their sexual lives, as well as their kinship relationships, as well as their gender identities in the pre-modern world. And that actually a lot of the establishment of this gender binary and of heteropatriarchy happens through colonialism and the destruction of people's histories right, that, uh, that, that went into the establishment of this gender binary. That's a very powerful thing uh, for us to know and understand and to have as a history to go back to and be in conversation with as we're also thinking about uh, the future. Because the, the way in which this kind of modern telos of time happens is that the future is always distant from the past. And I think I want to think about ways in which the future and the past and the present can always kind of be in conversation with one another. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And we really appreciate you coming to speak at ACMCU, but also being on this podcast. Now, for those who want to, uh, you know, read a copy of your publications or how to access them, do you have a recommendation as to where to go? Well, they're always uh, welcome to uh, email me. Uh, you can find my email address on uh, my faculty page on the Williams College website. Um, and I'm happy to share with them my publications. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes.